you can listen to The Front on your smart speaker every morning. To hear the latest episode, just say, play the news from The Australian. From The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Claire Harvey. It's Friday, June 9. There's controversy over Brittany Higgins' multi-million dollar payout from the Commonwealth, with the opposition zeroing in on what senior Labor figures knew about Ms Higgins' allegations she was raped in Parliament House. Finance Minister Katie Gallagher, who features prominently in leaked text messages between Ms Higgins and her partner David Shiraz, says she had nothing to do with the payout. Australia must lean in to technology advances, like AI, to make Australia more productive, Anthony Albanese will tell a business forum hosted by The Australian and Sky News today. Embracing tech will free workers from admin and paperwork to spend more time caring, educating and innovating, the PM will say. Chris Dawson has declined to give evidence in his own defence as he faces a longer prison term for unlawful sex with a schoolgirl. He's already in Long Bay, serving 24 years for murdering his wife. In a moment, why he's staying silent and where that leaves his trial. The right to silence is sacred in our criminal justice system. From the moment an accused person interacts with police, they have the right to decline to say anything. It's up to the Crown to prove allegations against an individual beyond reasonable doubt. But sometimes an accused person's silence speaks volumes. Christopher Michael Dawson is a convicted murderer. He killed his wife Lynette, mother of his two little girls, because he wanted to get her out of the way of his desire to marry a much younger woman, a teenager, whom he'd met while he was a teacher at her high school. Dawson is appealing that conviction, but while he's languishing in Long Bay, he's also been standing trial for the unlawful carnal knowledge of that same younger woman. We can only call her AB. Since he was first arrested in 2018 as the direct result of the Australian's investigative journalism, Dawson has spoken only twice to declare himself not guilty in both the murder and carnal knowledge trials. He exercised his right to silence, and in the New South Wales District Court on Thursday, the last day of this trial, it became clear he would also not call a single witness. Chris Dawson now has a history of not agreeing to be examined by his own defence counsel in court. That includes his murder trial last year and now this carnal knowledge trial. Matthew Condon is a senior writer with The Australian and one of my co-hosts on our newest show, The Teacher's Accuser. The inherent danger, of course, is that if he does expose himself to the court and his own counsel, he then has to be cross-examined by the prosecution. But he has chosen to go the low road and uh, not to expose himself to that potentially fraught position. You've been sitting in court next to me, Matt, for a couple of weeks. What have been your observations of Dawson over those days? On the first day of the trial, when Dawson was in person, I observed him very, very closely and felt 
there was a strange disconnectedness about him. He had this sort of mid-distance stare that he had employed for almost all of the court time that day. I did feel either he is mentally unstable or this is a, a sort of persona he has chosen to adopt. It felt very different from the observation of him at the murder trial last year. He asked the judge if he could give evidence via the um, audiovisual link because of the, the strain, the stress and the pressure of being brought in that prison van from Long Bay every day into town. So he successfully um, requested that and from then on was giving evidence from Long Bay Jail. His countenance changed. He did appear a little bit more lively and a little bit more relaxed. These are some of the words spoken in the witness box by Dawson's estranged second wife, A.B., now a 59-year-old woman who says Dawson groomed and abused her. We've used a voice actor to bring you her testimony. This happened to me. I'm so sick of having to justify everything I say. I want you to believe what I'm saying. I want it to end. Just, that's all I want. For the past fortnight, the District Court has heard the claims of AB, backed by other Crown witnesses, that Dawson began having sex with her when she was 16 years old and a pupil of his in a subject called sports coaching at Cromer High on Sydney's northern beaches. He got me to undress in front of him. It was dark. I didn't want the lights on because I was afraid. He made sure I was comfortable all the way. He kept asking me, is this okay? This is all part of the process. I'll help you to get over trauma. And then he asked me, was that okay? Well, we've done that. I hope this was helpful. It was a good start. You did really well. And I was, oh, thank you, really grateful. I was told to keep it a secret. If you look back at the behaviour in the high schools, even just on the northern beaches of Sydney in the late 70s and 80s, through a contemporary lens, you metaphorically shake your head. It is almost impossible to believe that this errant behaviour that these teachers could quite literally sexually run amok is staggering. It is difficult to comprehend from a modern 21st century point of view. You're constantly asking yourself, who was observing this and not reporting this? Why was this allowed to flourish? Why were teachers allowed to quite literally express affection, emotion and, and sexual attention to children in the playground. It's another world and another planet that we revisited courtesy of this trial. Dawson's defence is that he did not commence sexual relations with the complainant until 1981, when she was 17 and no longer in his class. The pair married after he murdered Lynn, moved to Queensland and had a baby together. AB later left Dawson, returned to Sydney, and over subsequent years, she gave statements to the New South Wales Department of Education and to police about Dawson's alleged grooming and abuse of her. I felt she was extremely strong as a witness in this particular saga, this never-ending saga. I calculated that this narrative has dominated about 75% of her actual life which is a phenomenal thing. She's now almost 60, and this was occurring when she was 15, 16. So how a woman can transition through life and still carry this anvil over her head defies belief. But I felt she was very strong. 
After the break, the twin brother who's loomed large in these proceedings, even though there's no sign of him. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Interestingly, in this shortish trial, certainly compared to the 10-week murder trial, Paul Dawson featured very prominently in this trial, albeit however short it was. That's Matt Condon. His name kept recurring in relation to sexual activity with underage students, similarly to his twin brother, Christopher Dawson. What struck me profoundly was that we learned through the murder trial of the closeness of these twins, of sharing a language when they were toddlers, of living next door to each other through their entire adult lives, and a phenomenal closeness that you could write off to twinhood. During this trial, another woman who was in year nine in 1980 has alleged she was groomed by Paul Dawson, the twin brother of Chris, who was a teacher at Forest High, also on the Northern Beaches. In this trial, we learned that at the same point in time, Christopher Dawson and his brother Paul Dawson, both PE teachers, so there's the mirror image again, both with teenage babysitters, both babysitters being pupils of respective schools where they were teaching, and sexual behaviour with those children. I mean, again, the mirroring was very powerful and unnerving. Two new allegations by AB have been raised at this trial and they've prompted some fiery exchanges about memory. What I'm suggesting is that that did not happen in 1979. Well, I'm telling you it did. And what I'm suggesting to you, based on how you've described the significance of that experience, is that it's something that would be a clear memory of the first contact you had with the accused. No, not necessarily. Memories are fickle things and you don't know when they are going to come up. And maybe I just put two and two together where, you know, the man saw a picture of me topless and that was what interested him. And not just that I was a beautiful-looking young thing that he saw playing in the playground when I was in Year 10. I'm going to suggest to you that the accused never made any comment to you about his impression of the topless photograph. That's not true. The first new claim was that Dawson had first noticed AB when he obtained a topless photo of her in 1979, when she was 15. That had been circulating in the playground. The photo somehow found its way into the hands of her physical education teacher, Christopher Dawson, and we learned that Mr Dawson returned the salacious photograph back to AB herself. It strikes me as extraordinary that a teenager who didn't even have Dawson as a teacher, what are the odds that it would end up in the hands of the man who would ultimately be charged, as we are witnessing now in this trial, with the carnal knowledge with this particular student. I'm still trying to work my head around how a salacious photograph could ultimately find its way into the hands of the very man who would ultimately hook up with that student. 
The second was AB's evidence that, in 1980, she witnessed Dawson and another sports teacher jostling over who would get to teach AB and her cool group of school friends at the beginning of Year 11. The defence also sought to suggest that witnesses in this trial might have been influenced by hearing the teacher's pet podcast, in which details about the timeline of events were aired in 2018. But the Crown told the court that the podcast has since been heavily edited to remove all details about Dawson's alleged abuse of AB and about other allegations about his behaviour towards schoolgirls. The defence did not challenge this evidence. It's an absolutely unique situation in that a story, a narrative, a podcast goes out into the world and tens of millions of people download and listen to that story. And ultimately, this case ends up in the courts. How could it not influence witnesses in the forthcoming trial? I'm not sure whether the law has actually caught up with how to deal with contemporary storytelling, as in the podcast. Prosecutor Emma Blizzard and public defender Claire Worsley will make closing submissions on Tuesday. New South Wales District Court Judge Sarah Huggett will retire to consider her verdict after the submissions and will return with a verdict at a date yet to be set. Subscribers to The Australian will be first to know when a verdict comes down and come back to the front for more updates and analysis. Don't forget, our latest podcast is The Teacher's Accuser. Hear it wherever you got this podcast. Thanks for joining us on The Front. Our team is Leah Samaglou, Jasper Leake, Tiffany Dimack, Kristen Amiot and me, Claire Harvey. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.